You can go ahead and take your seats. If you are someone that reads or watches the news on a regular basis, I don't know if it ever stands out to you sometimes the contrast of things that actually make it onto world headlines. For example, uh, the tragedy that took place starting two weeks ago where the, the, the submarine or, or whatever term they give it for the Titan uh, that went missing and then eventually they discovered that the five people that were on board had lost their lives. Tragic, genuinely sad. Like, like it's, it is a great, great pity. But what, is, what stands out to me is that the amount of attention, media attention, the blow by blow, the moment by moment, um, like every step, every, every, every bit of detail was covered about these five people, it stands in contrast to me as to the 750 people that were on the boat that capsized and sunk just off the coast of Greece. Estimates are that about 650 refugees died, drowned, died, 100 of which at least were children. The, there's a contrast, there's a conflicting value system, in my opinion, in terms of the amount of attention given to the Titan and the amount of attention given to the 650 lives that were most likely lost on the boat. Again, if you read world news, depending on the site that you use, you may have discovered on world news that Madonna was in hospital this week. Now, I have empathy for Madonna being in hospital this week. She's out of hospital, so you can all breathe easy. But, 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 what, but what was not reported to my knowledge, on any, certainly no Western world news media, is the 450 to 750 northern Nigerian Christians that were murdered in May and June. My point being that we live in a world with conflicting values. And I think it's easy for us to try and assess and analyze why certain things get our interest and others don't. And, and I'm not arguing that the news is ever completely objective and without some kind of uh, sort of biased angle to it. I'm just saying that there are things that get our attention, there are things that are easier to ignore, and I think that it's another example of what Peter was addressing 2,000 years ago in this small letter that we've been taking a look at, where he has repeatedly throughout the letter pointed out to his readers that, that the world we're living in is not our home. It's not our permanent home. We are temporary residents and foreigners living in a world with conflicting values, conflicting things that, 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 that people care about. And so he keeps addressing how, how to remain resilient, how to, how to be a faithful exile where we don't cut ourselves off, but, but where we remain present in conflicting and contrasting and, and in some cases uh, our brain is going completely dead. Controversial, looking for another C, controversial uh, circumstances. He's, he's looking at, at how to have an attitude that he's still looking to honor God in the way that we live honorable lives, even in dishonoring circumstances. How, how we are to do good even when evil is being done to us. How, how people are to be valued. The last couple of weeks, we've, we've looked at some of the very controversial passages in 1 Peter and how important context has been when Peter addresses wives 
and their attitudes towards husbands, and husbands and their attitudes towards wives, and, and, and our attitude towards civil authorities. And, and he even addresses Christian slaves that are still working for unbelieving masters and the attitudes that are to be addressed. And taken out of context, these are very, very uh, damaging even passages. And by the way, a lot of damage has been done, just to be clear. A lot of damage has been done over centuries and centuries by people taking passages of Scripture out of context, out of the context of its writing, out of the context of the original culture that, that it was addressing, and has been used to abuse, misuse, harm people, manipulate people, control people. And just so you know, that is never God's heart. If you ever think God wants you to use a passage of Scripture or an idea or a thought to control and dominate someone else, I can't put it any more strongly than this. That's coming from the other side. That's coming from the dark side. There is nothing about God that is manipulative or dominating and controlling to the point that it might actually offend us sometimes. Because sometimes I'd rather God just control me and make me do what he wants me to do. But he doesn't do that. He actually gives me a choice. He will make me aware of things. He, will, he, he has given us his express word of God that we can try and understand and live by. He will invite us. But God doesn't dominate and manipulate and control us. So I want to pick up where we have left off the last couple of weeks, where Peter has been giving a couple of examples of what he initially recorded in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Dear friends, I warn you, here's the theme again, as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly. Like it matters how we live. We can misunderstand and abuse grace. Grace is free. It's, God is gracious towards us, but it matters how we respond to that grace. He wants us to live properly among unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable beha behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Then he goes into some of the examples that we've touched on the last two weeks. We're gonna look at the last example that he's addressing today. Found in chapter three, verse eight, it says, finally, in other words, this is the last example of living honorable lives. This is the last example of, of how to live as temporary residents and foreigners. It's not exhaustive, but, but these are some of the examples that he thought were relevant to the people that he was writing to in that day. All of you, he's referring to Christians, followers of Jesus, should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. What I want to take a look at today, in this last example, in this area that he's been discussing, is how to be a resilient community. I think that, I think that as people that are living as foreigners, as, as temporary residents, I think that, that he's trying to address Christ followers, so believers, and saying, how do you actually form a resilient community so that you don't make it any easier for the enemy. And by the enemy, I don't think he's generally referring to other people, just to be clear. Yes, you may, you know, there are times where you do have an enemy in the natural, but for the most time, the real enemy is behind that enemy. In fact, in the next chapter, you'll read him talking about being, being aware, being careful of your enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And I would argue strongly that the enemy or one of his cronies don't target the weakest sheep. He targets the most isolated sheep. 
He doesn't, he doesn't target the person that has no, no conviction, no history, no experience. I think, I think it's the person who is alone, who is, who is being hammered by one challenge after another, one area of grief after another, one, one doubt after another, and they're all alone. They're not in a community where there is resilience, where there is support, where, where, where someone else can have faith when you're lacking all your faith. I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life where, where you have not been able to pray. It might not even be because you've changed anything that you believe, but in that moment, there's so much grief, there's so much trauma, you don't even know where to begin with your prayer, but then you discover that other people are praying for you. Anyone? I'm telling you, that is a very special gift. It is an exceptionally special gift. When you, when you are aware of your own vulnerability and the fact that you don't have, like, I mean, like, you know, you, you, you kind of feel like you should, I want to, but like, like, you just don't care even in that moment. And to find out that other people aren't intimidated by your lack of care in that moment. They're not intimidated by your humanity. They're not offended by your humanness. They've got your back. It's cool. You can be angry. You can be discouraged. You can be, I mean, you're not saying these things to the person, but in reality, you're saying, I've got you. Like, it's okay. I can remember one moment in my life in particular. I mean, there've been a couple others that I think come, come closer, but I remember one, one moment in particular. I'm talking probably 25 years ago where there was just so, it felt like wave after wave after wave after wave. And I remember, and I remember lying in bed the one night and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't even form words in my, in my mind. Like I just, which if you know me, I don't normally have a shortage of words, okay? But, but there was such a depth to the stress and grief and trauma. And I cannot begin to tell you how releasing it was, how encouraging it was to feel like God's saying, like, it's okay, I got you. And to know that other people had me and were, and were praying. And I'm telling you that there are times in my life where I know that other people have been praying for that burden that is burdening me more than what I am. And I'm just grateful. I, there, isn't a, there isn't a doubt in my mind. This might scare some of you. Hopefully it doesn't. But there isn't a doubt in my mind that if it wasn't for people, I wouldn't be standing here today. I feel like there are three things that, three, three pillars, each of which I think take one of those away. I don't think I'd be, I certainly wouldn't be standing here. I don't know if I'd be serving God. One is an actual series of encounters and revelations with God. So, so actually experiencing God. Don't have time to unpack that. Second would be responsibilities. What I mean by that is there have been times in my life where, where the burden to continue has not been so much because of me, but it's been because of what's at stake with others, and I feel a responsibility, and I feel like, like, I feel like if it was just me, it'd be easy to give up, but because there are other people, um, I feel like there's, there's more to fight for than, than just my own self right now. Um, it's also forced me to have to work through questions, work through crises of faith when, when, I, when I'm responsible for more than just myself. And third is people. I am deeply grateful for the people that have been in my life the last 25 plus years that, that have had my back when I need someone to have my back, that have asked tough questions when I need them to ask tough questions, that have encouraged something when my personality is veering in the completely opposite 
direction. We need a resilient community. We don't want to make it easy on the enemy. And I'm telling you that when we live in the opposite of a resilient community, when, when we are fractured, divided, quick to get offended, quick to, to get bitter with each other, we hold on to unforgiveness, when, when, when we're quick to gossip, when, we, when, when there's infighting, the enemy's like, cool, I'll move on to someone else because they, like, they're, doing, they, they're doing my work for me. Again, if you read the news, you'd be very familiar with what's been happening over the last year and a bit from, from the Russian troops. I want to be very, by the way, be, be careful when you make reference to stories like this because it's not Russia or Russians. There are, it's people. There's a president, there are military leaders, there are, there are people that are responsible for the war on Ukraine. One of those people, if you read the news much, you'd be familiar with the leader of the, I think they pronounce it Wagner, mercenary group, roughly 25,000 mercenaries that have played quite an effective role on Russia's behalf, on the Russian military's behalf, in attacking Ukraine. But if, you, if you're familiar with Prigozhin, I think is his name, um, there'll be a picture up here. He's the guy on the right. He looks even less happy than Putin on the left, okay? Like, like he's not shy. If you read the news, like, like, he, like he will go into, into like almost a little bit of a mini tantrum uh, attacking the lack of support from the military or, or especially targeting a couple of the, of the military leaders. And it all built, boiled, built up to a boiling point last weekend where, where the Russian military were wanting all mercenaries to sign contracts directly with the Russian military. He wasn't happy with this because he's already gotten a billion dollars out of the Russian government for for his mercenaries in terms of bonuses and things, got an extra billion dollars in terms of providing food. I mean, that's pretty good, right? Like you got a good deal when you can cater for everybody and, and you're getting an extra billion dollars for, you know, hurting people. And, and so he wasn't happy with the idea of, of them being, being controlled by the military. And so effectively he staged a coup or an attempted coup, uh, a mutiny last weekend and took over a Russian town in the south, in the south of Russia shot down a couple of Russian military helicopters, and they got to within 200 kilometers of Moscow. Like, in my lifetime, it's the first time that I've noticed Vladimir Putin getting a bit nervous, publicly at least. And long story short, uh, they, they managed to defuse it. The president of Belarus taking a lot of credit, and, and so they, they actually managed to, to kind of quash the mutiny. Now, I've got to be honest to say that I've got a little bit interested. Like I was a little bit, maybe this isn't a good thing, but like a little bit excited at the idea. I've never been excited before about mutiny or, or anything like that. But in this case, I'm thinking if the leader of 25,000 mercenaries is now suddenly undermining and attacking the military leaders of the Russian military, they are imploding on themselves. They are dividing and trying to attack one another. They're going to have less people and energy and attention to give towards what they're trying to do in Ukraine, right? So I'm a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more of an effect, which might be completely wrong. I, I'm just using this as a point, okay? Do you know how often the job is made easy for our spiritual enemy because we are infighting? Because, because we're staging coups, because there's mutiny amongst Christians, 
amongst followers of Jesus. Like, it's weird if you think about it. So you don't want to think about it for too long. And I'm not going to focus on that. I want to focus on how do we, how do we not allow that to happen? How do we actually develop a resilient community? And I want to take a look at a couple of uh, traits that I think would define a Christian community, a resilient Christian community, which is addressed in the remainder of chapter 3. First of all is unity. Or another word that is used in some translations is the word harmony. Harmony, if you know anything about music, doesn't, it means that everyone's not singing at the exact same key. They're actually complementing one another to actually provide for a fuller sound. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time I think we get that right on a Sunday. The only time you would notice it is when we don't get it right on a Sunday. So when you think something's sounding off, that means we're not managing to harmonize together from stage. Not me, because I've got perfect pitch. But, but, but those that are on stage, I'm joking. In other words, to be united is not to be uniform. There are differences. We bring different personalities. Not different value systems, not different theology, but, but we bring out different personalities, we bring out different gifts, we bring out different burdens. But together, we are trying to create a harmony. Anytime there is more than one vision, there's division. Anytime we are, anytime we have different values, and values are not just what we talk about, it's what we live out. When we have different values, that is going to lead to division. And so I'm, my burden is that if there isn't a willingness to sometimes push through some of our personal preferences and some of our personality clashes, if there isn't a willingness to be united around God's purposes, God's vision, what God has called us to, God's values, if without that, nothing else matters, actually. And again, I want to tell you that there's a lot more at stake than just what we call the local church because, because God has actually planned to plant Christians in local faith communities. And so if we can't work on that unity, if we can't work on picking our battles, if we can't work, and, and by the way, there are battles to be picked. I'll touch on that just now. I'm not talking about false peace. I'm not talking about sweeping things under the rug. I'm saying that we keep the main thing the main thing. Guys, without unity, Peter, Peter uses the term one mind, or some translations would say one mind and one heart. We have to be united around God's purposes. Number two is humility. There is no way for us to have unity without humility. Humility is where, I think I touched on this last week, where, where we recognize that sometimes it's not enough to be right, or, or, maybe, or maybe we think we're right, but, but it's not explicit, it's not confirmed. So how do we actually hold on to some of these tensions? But it's far more than that. Humility is not thinking badly of yourself. It's not invalidating or negating who God has made you to be or the gifts He's given you or the value that He wants you to bring. It is holding it in, in an appropriate tension. I actually think that, that really healthy humility has a gentle confidence about it. You're not apologizing for who God's made you to be. You're not apologizing for, for a gift that God's given you or a conviction. You're not boasting about it either. You're not using it to do damage or to hurt people, but you're not, but you're not doing this fake Christian humility thing. Oh, it's not me, it's just the Lord, brother. It wasn't that good. Oh, that's cool. No, that's like a vomit. Like, no, 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 no. No, no, humility is actually, actually has a healthy level of confidence to it, but it's not arrogant. It's not boastful. You're not proud in an egotistical way when it comes to some of those 
strengths and gifts. If, you, if God has made you charismatic and extroverted and you're good with people, like take responsibility for it. Don't apologize for it. Don't say, no, that's not me. You're lying. If that's you, own it and be a good steward of that. There's a lot more that we could say about humility. Perhaps my last comment here is that humility also recognizes sincerely, sincerely, that there's no such thing as sinners and non-sinners. There's only those who acknowledge their sin and those who deny their sin. In other words, we are all in need of grace. And, and not just before you committed your life to Christ. I would argue that after you've committed your life to Christ, you become way more aware of just, how, it's like, holy smokes. I mean, I thought I had issues, but like I've got way more issues than I thought I had. Like as you go on, as you go on in your journey and you draw closer to God and you start realizing heart attitudes and motives and sensitivities, it's like, oh, like, like we actually need, we realize that we need God's mercy every single day. We need God's grace every single day. Humility recognizes that. Humility recognizes that, so it doesn't water down someone else's sin, but it doesn't, it doesn't ignore mine. And it starts from a place of, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Number three, I think that a resilient community will have a healthy level of sympathy. Peter uses this term in that passage that we read a few moments ago. And, and the difference between sympathy and what we'll look at in a moment as compassion is that sympathy is the ability to recognize someone else's feelings and to care about it appropriately. It's not to carry every feeling. I want to be clear. It is impossible to carry every person's feeling, every person's burden, every person's joy. There, there are so many tensions that go with this, but, but it's, the ability, it's the ability, which I think is a God-given ability, which I don't think is a one-self. I actually think that it's an ongoing thing. As we walk closely with God, I think He helps us to see people through His eyes. And so we're able to recognize and appreciate that someone is feeling something and we care about it. Even if we're not carrying it, even if we don't internalize it, we care about it. This is different, however, to uh, compassion, which is number four. Compassion, coming from the original Greek word that is defined as compassion, or in the version that we read just now, is uh, the, the, the term tender-hearted is used. I think compassion is a more accurate term that is used. It actually refers to something that happens internally so, so you feel compassion, but you're actually moved with compassion. The difference with sympathy is that you can appreciate what someone is feeling, but compassion is where you, you are moved to do something. One scholar put it this way, when you read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and the term compassion is used, you'll generally find an and attached. Jesus was moved with compassion and he healed the person. Jesus was filled with compassion, and he set the demon-possessed man free. Jesus was filled with compassion, and he showed someone dignity and told the lady to, you know, that her sins are forgiven. There's always an and attached to compassion, where we are actually moved to doing something. And as fellow followers of Jesus, there is an additional but we need a lot of wisdom and discernment, responsibility towards one another. Like if you're, in a, if you're in a healthy family and someone is struggling or in desperate need, 
it's not likely that you're just going to say, uh, sure, sorry, man. God bless and go well. Like you'll probably be moved to in some way trying to help alleviate whatever it is that that, that need is. Number five, I think another trait of resilient communities is love. A word that is used way too frequently to mean way too many different things. And I, and I don't think, I don't agree with the way that secular society typically defines love because it's often got a sentimental bend towards it. And I don't think that it's less than how the secular world might define it. I think it is way more. I think it is way deeper. It's more than just a feeling. It is, it is a, there is a burden, there is a commitment, there is a concern for the person's future, not just their momentary feelings. We, we love one another, which is why, and this is so controversial in 2023, and I get that. There, there are many obvious reasons why this would be controversial. Because also, by the way, I don't think that, that who you see on a Sunday is necessarily the church. That's maybe a whole other discussion. Because, because we want Sundays to be open to anyone that's exploring, anyone that's got questions. But, but the church, which the Bible also uses the metaphor of being a family or an army, there is a commitment, there's an accountability towards one another where sometimes we actually tell the truth in love. Like if I'm hurting someone, someone else is gonna love me enough to say, Jason, you're doing damage to that person. You might, maybe you're not seeing it, but you're actually hurting that person. Or Jason, you're, you are being selfish in the way that you're behaving in this consistent pattern. To love isn't just to give me a warm hug and say, Jason, you're the best, you're amazing. Although there's no, I mean, no danger of receiving too much of that. So you're allowed. I'm joking. But it's, but it's so much more than that. If, if you're a parent, the worst thing you could do for your kids is to only be concerned with their feelings in the moment. You have to be more concerned with their future than their feelings. Just so you know, my daughter sometimes will, will like say, Dad, I don't need you to be a friend to my, feeling, uh, to my future right now. Just be a friend to my feelings. I want to go past the shop. Can we please just... Can you be a friend to my feelings? Love, love is it's, it's so much deeper. There's a, there's a rigor to it. There's a, there's a strength to it. There's a meatiness to it. We can, love can push through offenses. Love can push through being misunderstood. But if you want the shortest definition, I think of the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 where Paul is writing in the context of believers serving together and functioning together and using their gifts together. And he starts off by saying that love is patient and love is kind. He says a whole bunch of other stuff. But I'm telling you that if we can just allow that to take root in our heart, that we will constantly, when we think of God, am I loving well? Am I loving well? Am I loving well? Where we can be thinking, God, am I showing appropriate patience? Am I showing appropriate kindness? Patience means that, that we will endure. We, we will persevere in understanding. Or we'll persevere in trying to forgive someone. Or we'll persevere in giving someone space and time to come to their senses. We'll, we'll persevere in, in not being quick to anger. Patience and kindness is us actually doing what's best for the other person. Now, sometimes that's going to be appreciated and again, 
in the right relationship, please, 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 in the right relationship, again, let's, let's use the analogy of a parent and a child, in the right relationship, sometimes what is kindest to the child is not going to be most appreciated by the child. Sometimes in a Christian marriage, what is kindest to the spouse is not necessarily what is most appreciated in the moment. Because in that moment, it might just not be what the person wants. And so there could be an, you know, an immature reaction to that. But it doesn't mean that you're not still committed to doing what's best. Love is patient and love is kind. Allow me a few moments just to clarify what I think are sometimes some misunderstandings and some abuses that are used when it comes to the idea of loving. And if you've been around for a while, you've heard me refer to the differences between forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. Forgiveness, I I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Forgiveness has got nothing to do with the other person. It's a one-player game. It It is choosing not to allow that offense to take root and to germinate and to grow and suffocate you. When we, when we forgive someone, we release a captive and discover that the captive set free was me. It is not dependent on that person's repentance. It is dependent on me trusting God with the future, with the outcome. Forgiveness, nothing to do with the other person. It's a bonus when the other person cares and they, and they repent, but, but, but it's not dependent on that. That is different, however, when it comes to reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-player game. So so if we're wanting to actually restore a relationship, well, now it does involve us addressing if there's been a significant issue, if there's been a significant breakdown in the relationship. If someone has offended the other, if someone has gossiped about the other, stolen from the other, betrayed the other, committed adultery, whatever, that now does involve two people. Reconciliation cannot be done by one person only. Forgiveness can be done by one person. Reconciliation involves both people. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because I think that sometimes we have this weird Christian caricature in our minds of of like, everyone's just got to be, you know, just nice and sweet and sing kumbaya. And and I'm like, no, that's false peace. That's not loving. That is actually actually abusing God's view of what, what true love is. True love holds one another accountable. If we're talking about a relationship and reconciliation, it involves both people. Both people have to be willing to address and own what they need to. And then lastly is trust. Just because you're forgiven and just because you've reconciled doesn't mean that trust is established again. In fact, I would argue that sometimes trusting someone could be the worst thing for you to do if they have repeatedly broken your trust. If if in a marriage someone has continued to be abusive, you can forgive and release that person. To reconcile means that there needs to be evidence that that person is, is not just speaking lip service, but is actually taking action. They're putting things into place. They're taking responsibility for themselves. They're not making excuses. And, and over time, they've got a track record of repentance. Repentance means you've changed direction. It's not just something we say. There should be fruit of our repentance. But then trust is built over an extended period of time. It's amazing how it can take so long to build trust and yet it can be broken in a moment. Don't let anyone shame you for not trusting someone who has repeatedly proven themselves to be untrustworthy. 
That's weird, actually. And again, I think that sometimes that's a form of spiritual abuse and manipulation. Again, don't confuse that with forgiveness. No, you forgive. But if, okay, okay. Let me put it this way. If someone has harmed your child, are you going to allow that person access to your child again? Of course not. You would, act, you would actually be held criminally liable if you knowingly allowed that, right? Can you forgive that person? Yes, you can. Can you reconcile that with, with, a, with an enormous amount of wisdom, perspective, guidance, and a lot of time? Would you ever trust that person again with that child? That might not be a kind thing to do to that person. So for example, I'll give you an example within the church. If someone has ever been convicted of or been accused of behaving inappropriately towards children, we, there's no way, it doesn't matter how much, we might want the best for that person, love that person, forgive that person. It is, I'm not being kind to that person, positioning them with children, putting them in their care. That doesn't mean that they can't serve somewhere else if their lives have shown evidence of, but, but that is not a fair level of trust to put in that person. Is this making sense? And at times, I, I had someone some time ago who, 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 who had a, a really destructive recurring pattern in their lives. And, and yet they still held on to this ideal of the kind of person that they wanted to date and, and marry, etc. And, and I, I tried so hard to explain in the most constructive terms possible that the kind of person you want to marry shouldn't want to marry you. I didn't say it like that, but that's what I was trying, trying to explain. It doesn't, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. I'm, so, so what I'll try to explain is, I think you owe the kind of person you want to marry a new track record, a new CV. I'm not saying that you are bound by any means to your past. But I'm saying the kind of person that you want to marry would, like, it, it, it is inconsistent with the kind of person you want to marry to expect that person to trust someone that has got no trust-building track record. So, so when you've got years of destructive behavior on your track record, you may need to be patient over the next year or two or three or four or five or six or seven in building up a new track record that you can own. Hey, yes, that's who I used to be. That, yes, that's a part of my past. I'm not denying that, but that's not who I am anymore, and I've got a track record to show that. There's a difference between forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust, and I just feel like so many people in church communities have been hurt by misunderstanding those differences. But just to be clear, forgiveness doesn't depend on the other person. That's a one play again. Number six, a sixth trait is to resist revenge. You might want to look at the person next to you and say, God help you. Because as much as this might sound good, this sounds great, and we all want people to give up revenge towards us, if you are a normal functioning human being and the right button gets pushed significantly, sufficiently, consistently enough, I'm just telling you your human nature, I'm not saying that you will act on it, but I'm saying you're, guys, can we please not deny our reality 
Temptation is not the same thing as, you know, failure or sin. Again, I just think sometimes as Christians, we're so, like we're our own worst enemy because, because of this, this idea of having to maintain a facade instead of actually being real about who we are. I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel disappointed. I want to hurt somebody. I, I'm tired of having to trust God. Can, can we please allow for a little more space for some honesty, bearing in mind that two-thirds of the Psalms, which is, which is the biggest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, two-thirds are Psalms of lament. God, I'm disappointed. I'm angry. Punch them in the face. And then as it goes on, so, so, so notice the trend. Because they are honest with God, they're not worried that God is intimidated by their honesty. Another word for honesty is reality. I am being honest about the reality of my feelings. I'm not saying that, that they should be that. I'm not saying that they're okay. I'm not saying I want to stay with them. But because I can meet God in re- God doesn't meet us in deception. God doesn't meet you in your fallacy. He meets you and he meets me in reality. So when I'm saying, God, I am frustrated. I am angry. I am disappointed. I am whatever. If you read those Psalms, you kind of notice a change in language and a change in tone where towards the end, it's almost like you can almost hear them breathing out of sight. Like, but you're good. Your faithful love endures forever. Okay. And it's, and, and it's, and it's like they... They come to their senses, but it starts off with being real. Put another way, I say it this way. Our emotions should be stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. But, but with the wrong Christian view or definition of honesty, we, we don't even know what we're feeling. And, we'll, and yes, you want to be very careful who you share that with and where and what. But I'm telling you, God is not intimidated by, by you being honest with God. I want revenge right now. Maybe you're not even thinking in those terms. But, but you've been hurt. You've been lied about. You've been insulted. And Peter says in chapter 3, verse 9, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. I th- I'm telling you that what is written there requires something supernatural. It requires the spirit of the living God giving us perspective, supernaturally lifting some of the burden, some of the anger, some of the aggression helping us to see a little bit more clearly, putting things into perspective. But it starts, I believe, with us being honest. It starts with us actually meeting God where we are. And I don't mean that to sound self-centered. Like, seriously, I don't. But sometimes we can be so highfalutin that, we, that we're like, I've got to meet God where He is. And I, and, I, and I actually think that God meets us where we are if we'll meet Him where we are. But sometimes we're not where we are, so we can't meet God where we are because we're not there. He's there where we are, waiting to meet us, but he can't find us because we're still holding on to some kind of facade. So it is not okay to take revenge. It is not a part of the kingdom of God. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, said, bless those who curse you. If you think that sounds easy and wonderful, you haven't thought about that long enough. It needs God. 
Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase, puts one part of that passage like this. He says, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Now, I hate to confess it, but if sarcasm was a spiritual gift, I may have it. It is not hard for me to bite. With, I mean, I've learned not to say it out loud, and I've learned not to think it as much as what I used to, but, but okay, I'll just move on. Number seven. Number seven. We're nearly done. Number seven. What is the time? Number seven. Perhaps, perhaps the part that is, okay, it's on the screen already. Work for peace. Perhaps, perhaps the part that I think is most misunderstood in terms of building a resilient community is our definition of peace and what we think is peace. Or that we think it just happens supernaturally and that it doesn't require effort. I'm, it does. It, it is not passive. It is not false peace. We have to search for peace. We have to work hard to maintain it. In verse 11, Peter says, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. I had this discussion with someone some time ago where, I mean, there's a whole bunch of context to this, but I mean, hectic accusations were being made against, against another leader in the church and, and it, was just, it was just unfounded. It was hectic. It was destructive. And and then, and then they kind of ended up with just, oh, but just pray about it. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, yes, there will always be prayer about this, but you are quoting some unnamed source that you're using as evidence to make this hectic accusation against another senior leader in the church. Hold on. That's not biblical. It's not, it's not, it's not passive and we just... And we just abdicate responsibility, you've thrown a hand grenade and you're walking away. No, no. If, if what you're saying is true, then you need to tell us who so that we can try and resolve and reconcile. Because A, either you've misunderstood this person, and just so you know, in church life, normally when people say people, and normally lots of people, there's normally one person. So like, I don't even want to hear anything if it's about a nameless person. No, no, no. If you're going to lob some hectic accusation, who, when, where, why, how, and let's, biblically, let's talk. Let's, let's get the people, because maybe you've misunderstood, or maybe they misunderstood, and, and maybe it's a storm in a teacup, and like, we can move on. Or maybe there's something more significant here. But it's not passive. It's, it is, peace is not the absence of conflict. Sometimes we need some really good conflict, but good, a constructive conflict where we're willing to have tough conversations. It actively pursues reconciliation and trying to resolve challenges. And just so you know, I mean, I don't have time to unpack all the various scriptures, but there are a number of passages in the New Testament that put things like division in the same lists as murder. Titus 3 verse 10 says, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with it. Now, we'd need time to discuss what is divisive, but, but, but I'm trying to emphasize that like, false peace matters. It's destructive. Working for peace, if you want a resilient Christian community, there has to be a willingness, where appropriate, don't, 
don't make a big deal out of everything, but where appropriate, a willingness to work for peace. So, quickly, rapid fire, some principles for peace. Number one, pick your battles. You cannot make everything a big deal, then nothing's a big deal. Secondly, have tough conversations. We have to be willing to have tough conversations. Talk to the person, not about the person. It is shocking how many people, how many Christians will talk about other Christians but be completely unwilling to talk to the person that has offended them or upset them. And I'm, I'm saying that is destructive. That is divisive. You land up leaving people with secondhand offenses because you may even resolve it with that person eventually, but, but all the people that you vomited on don't even know that it's been resolved. Be very careful that you're not only willing to talk about the person, but that you're willing to talk to the person. And when you do talk about the person, and I've got scriptures to back all this up, when you talk about the person, that you're talking to someone for perspective, for a godly biblical perspective on how to resolve it if it needs to be resolved. Or, or if you're just saying, look, maybe I'm being too sensitive, I've been going through a lot lately, and maybe the person is able to offer you perspective and de-escalate. But don't only be willing to talk about people. Way too much damage has been done in churches because of secondhand offenses and stuff that has been vomited on others that haven't been resolved appropriately. It's important to consider whether or not the other person is open to having the conversation because it will take two people. Own what is yours. Use I messages. Don't, don't go in there attacking. No, no, I, I heard this or I interpreted this or I perceived that and when that happens, I consider that to be X, Y, Z. Tell the truth in love. Truth and love. Remember, truth without love is mean. Love without truth is meaningless. Truth and love is medicine. Tell the truth in love, Ephesians 4. To be clear is to be kind. If it's done with love, obviously. To be clear is to be kind. Tell the last 10%. Sometimes we're willing to hover over the first 90% and we leave the last 10%, which is where all the real money is. That's where the real meat is, is in the last 10%. Obviously, watch your tone, face, and body language. Do not entertain gossip. Just don't. Gossip is when someone's willing to vomit on you and they have no intention of doing anything about it. They're not looking for perspective. They're looking for validation. They're just looking for you to agree with them about how terrible that other person is. Oh, but go, go, go serve with them. Love them. Bless them. But just so you know, they're a fill in the blank. Always direct the person to the offender. Don't entertain gossip. You might need to consider whether or not you need an objective mediator. And lastly, do what you can. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, and those of us without healthy boundaries will never feel like we've done everything we can, but you might need to stop and say, God, have I done everything I can? Do I need to actually release this to you? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then lastly, lastly, having said all of that, I know that was a fire hydrant, lastly, we need to relax in God. We need to actually relax in God. We can trust Him with the outcome. We can trust Him with those things that, that we cannot figure out, that we cannot control. If we are trying to please God, if we're trying to honor God when it comes to loving well, serving well, being humble, fighting for unity, uh, trying to resist false peace, when, when we are trying to 
to grow in relationships. We're trying to resolve conflict in a healthy way. Guys, I'm telling you, we can trust God. We can relax in Him. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 3 verse 12, the last passage, says, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and His ears are open to their prayer. I want to remind you that the Lord is watching and He is listening. If your heart is humble, if you are wanting to honor God, if you're wanting to build unity, if you're wanting to build a resilient community that can fight for one another, fight for a healthy future. We don't want to make the enemy's job easy. If there's a humility, if there's, man, God gives grace. He is watching. He is listening. I think Peter is addressing the fact that there is a... There is a sovereign Lord over all of this. And He won't be mocked. Galatians 6 verse 7. He won't be mocked. You'll reap what you sow. If you're sowing humility, you'll reap grace. If you're sowing forgiveness, I'm telling you, you'll reap freedom. If you're sowing a, a willingness to, with the right heart, having checked yourself, having appropriate tough conversations, I think that you're going to reap stronger relationships. We can relax in God. Put another way, and I know this is a bit cliche, we do our best and we trust God with the rest. We do, that's all you can do. You do your best. You do what you can. We trust God with what we can't. We can't control the outcome. We can't tr- control another person's heart. We can't control the community. The only person that we have even the slightest bit of control over, and even that we struggle with, is ourselves. So we do what we can and we trust God with the rest. I want to ask you just to close your eyes for a few moments because I want you to reflect on a single question, hopefully, prayerfully. Prayerfully, can I encourage you to simply ask God if there is a single area that He might want to bring to your attention where He's inviting you to relax in Him? Very simple. Very simple. God, is there an area where you are inviting me to relax? You're inviting me to trust you with this challenge. You're inviting me to trust you with this conversation. You're inviting me to trust you with humility or unity. 